Britton Covey is a wide receiver for the University of Utah football team, a freshman All-American who ranked fifth all-time at Utah in career punt returns and led Utah in receiving yards in 2015, 2018, and 2020. Britton shared with me the principles that have helped him to be successful, stay focused, and create daily habits toward winning. One of the coolest and most unexpected things about this interview was Britton sharing his experience with being on one of the most diverse football teams in the country and why he believes there's so much strength to be gained from the diversity in his teammates and friendships with them. Britton shares with me as well what it was like to give up two years to serve a full-time mission for his church and then redshirting three times. He also gives me a peek into what it was like growing up as the grandson of New York Times bestselling author and thought leader Stephen Covey, who wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. This interview was thought-provoking and inspiring in so many ways, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. here with a brand new friend who, well, not a brand new friend. We've been Insta friends for a little while, but someone who I have watched on TV a lot. And his name is Britton Covey, and he is a member of the University of Utah football team. Um, Britton, tell us about a little more about yourself. I know a few things, but tell me more about like who you are when you introduce yourself to people. Great. Well, yeah. Well, first, thanks for thanks for having me on. I, I really appreciate it. This is fun. I, I don't get to do many podcasts or things outside of football. So, yeah. um, but like you said, yeah, I, I play football at the University of Utah. Um, I'm a junior and it's, I'm actually, this is my third junior year, believe it or not. <laughs> it's crazy. I'm, I'm going to be a grandpa by the time I graduate because you're an immortal member of the football exactly. team. Yeah. I, I really, it's, it's funny. I'm 23 and there are guys on the team that are 18. So I feel pretty pretty old right now. <laughs> You're <laughs> but, not old. Yeah, well, I guess I guess not. So yeah, I, I play football at the University of Utah. Um, I'm I recently got married yes, or two days ago was my one year anniversary. Oh, happy anniversary. Uh, thank you. Yes. And my wife actually goes to BYU. So we've got a little rivalry between Love us. Which is kind of fun. <laughs> um, but yeah, it just playing football. And I'm I'm currently have an internship right now with uh, someone named Yogi Roth, who is on the Pac-12 networks. Um, so I'm cool. doing similar things to this, editing podcasts, videos. And yeah, so that's that's a little bit about what I'm doing right now. Very cool. And uh, my family knows Leia a little bit because I'm I'm from Bountiful, but I'm actually old. I'm I'm 36, so I'm way too old to know her. But I think a couple of my siblings know her, and so she's oh. just beautiful and lovely. And um, so anyway, we think that you guys are a really cute little pair. But um, yeah, so let's talk about. Like I said, I've been watching you for a long time because I I grew up a University of Utah football fan and have watched Ute games as long as I can remember with my family. They've been season ticket holders. We've gone to games for forever and ever. Um, like we went to the BCS bowl games that the Utes got into. And yeah, I mean, it's just been a long time family tradition, Mm -hmm. but the first time that your story and your name really stood out to me was when ESPN the first time ran this kind of side story about you. So let's talk about that and how that came about. Do you remember like where 
where that yeah. story came from? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the story, the, the whole base of the story was just the unexpected nature of me playing. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if I remember correctly, it being my freshman year and, you know, I played quarterback in high school. I was this small, undersized quarterback from Provo, Utah, uh, who I don't think many colleges were too interested in because they <laughs> didn't think my, you know, my size or my ability would translate to the next level. And so there was some controversy surrounding whether or not a team should give me a scholarship and things like that. So I think I kind of flew under the radar for a little while uh, mm -hmm. with lower expectations from most people and most fans. And uh, I, I was able to have a really successful freshman year. And I think, I don't know, maybe it's just the little man syndrome in everybody, but I think <laughs> everybody just likes uh, an underdog story. And I, and, totally. and I think that's kind of where I got my start. And I mean, I've been dealing with those types of expectations throughout my life. And, uh, that it, it was pretty fun. And then, and then ESPN also ran a story because I was, uh, after the football season, I was choosing to leave football for two years to serve an LDS mission, uh, yeah. which was pretty unique for the situation as well. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about, first of all, how, um, how you made it onto the team and kind of like what the process, if there's anything that stands out that was significant that you can share with us. And then I want to talk about the mission. Yeah. Well, like, like I said, I, I played quarterback in high school. So, mm -hmm. uh, but I wasn't tall enough to play quarterback in college. Well, most people, th I still think I could have done it, but <laughs> that's just me. so I, I was recruited as a receiver um, throughout my career and so I knew I'd had to I would have to switch positions and recruiting was a tough process. I, obviously my family has always gone to BYU. Um, my brother, Steven played football at BYU and, and a, kind of a BYU legacy. So it was a hard decision for me to, to go to Utah. I, I will say I, I did not like Utah. I'd say the first 16 years of my life. <laughs> um, but uh, my family, we're really good friends with the Whittinghams, Kyle Whittingham, the head coach. Okay. And he's, he's a great person and they had a great staff. And I think the main thing was they never saw my size as a disadvantage. Um, I was the smallest on the team at the time, 5'8", 155 pounds. And uh, they never really saw it as a disadvantage. And I always wanted to be around people who believed in me rather than tried to think about what I couldn't do, obviously. So yeah. yeah, I got a scholarship and came up and uh, was pretty intimidated by things at first and had to grow, but ended up getting an opportunity. And yeah, I mean, the first game we played, we played against Michigan, who was one of the top 10 teams in the country. And mm -hmm. I was uh, extremely terrified playing against a guy named Jabril Peppers, who, who's amazing. He plays in the NFL now. Mm -hmm. And he was about twice my size and he was trash talking <laughs> me the whole game. But really, <laughs> yeah, I feel like I hold, I held my own well enough. Yeah. Anyways, so, that, that's a little bit of how I got on the team. I love that. So you said you were intimidated, which surprises me because your personality and the interviews that I've heard and just kind of watching you grow over time um, with this team, it doesn't like you don't put off 
that vibe of being intimidated. So what did you do to overcome that? Was there something mentally or, or internally that you were doing to like talk yourself out of that or like, yeah, how did you do that? Definitely. I, I, I tend to do a lot of visualization because I get really nervous in the moment. And like you said, it may not seem like it with how I, how I talk or, or how I perform, but I do get nervous. And I think a lot of people get nervous that are really good at something and that's okay. You know, I've always been taught that that means you care. But uh, what I usually do is I'll spend a few hours uh, before the game or before whatever it is, just visualizing myself. I visualize two things. One, th- one I visualize making the play or, or having a really good game and dominating and what that feels like. Mm-hmm. But then I also visualize not making the play and how am I going to cope with that? You know, how am I going to respond? That way, when I get in the moment, it's almost as if I've done it multiple yeah. times before. Yeah. And, and I think that's what, what helped me a lot. I, I would just visualize and, and it got to the point where it, it was almost as if I had done it hundreds of times. So cool. I love that. Were there things that your parents taught you growing up too, as far as believing in yourself? Or you talked a little bit about like the uphill battle of, you know, being recruited and some people maybe were more like mm-hmm. believed in you more than others or whatever. Were there things that your parents did growing up that instilled confidence in you? Yeah. Well, I mean, my, my parents were great. Both of my older brothers were amazing athletes and amazing people, obviously, but they were just so loving to me throughout my childhood. I think that it's important nowadays, especially I'll, I'll see all these parents that are so obsessed with their children getting scholarships and sports to the mm-hmm. point where their children feel like failures almost if they don't. Um, mm-hmm. And my parents were never like that. It was always mm-hmm. you do what you want to do, and we will support you. And I'm sure there was quite a bit of blind parental just like confidence in me, which I really appreciated. But I mean, my dad would tell me, look, if you want to do musical theater, because I love theater, he's like, you do it. Cool. And, and we'll support you. Maybe I could have been a Troy Bolton. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> if I would have had the voice, but. Uh, my kids are obsessed with that movie. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that, that helped me a lot. They, they, they had that blind parental confidence in me and, and it was really sweet. That's awesome. Okay, let's move into serving a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ. So was there any doubt in your mind? Where did you, like, what was your process deciding to serve a mission? And what did that look like for your football career? Did you know you were coming back to a position? Tell me kind of your whole process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, serving a mission, it was something that I always feel like I knew I wanted to do. And I remember being... uh, younger, I was probably 13 or 14. And my brother had just gone on mission, my other brother was about to go. And he told me just to make the decision now that I was going to serve so that whatever happened in my life, it wasn't going to sway me because I was already set in stone. And Mm -hmm. so I made the decision when I was younger. And then I reaffirmed that decision before my freshman year, and said, whether I have a good year or bad year, I'm still going to go Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm still going to go on a mission, serve the Lord, serve the people. And, and it was great because uh, I feel like I always had that priority in my mind and it wasn't even a hard decision to leave. For a lot of people, it was though. I mean, I had teammates and coaches try and convince me otherwise for <laughs> months. You know, I, I, some of my teammates could not grasp the concept of why I would leave after a successful season. 
Right. For two years. And I told them, you know, I wouldn't be working out much. I wouldn't be hardly doing any football. I'd be playing football, soccer. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you served in Chile, right? I, yeah, I served in Chile. And my dad actually told me that this morning because he also served in Chile. So he was uh, like, oh, I, my, I was talking to my parents who are serving a mission currently in uh-huh. Spain. And they were like, what are you doing today? And I told them I was interviewing you. And my dad got really excited and said, oh, I love that he served a mission in Chile. Also, I feel like a kinship with him. So, Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, anyway. that, that, that was it. I, you know, I chose to hang up the cleats for a couple of years and mm-hmm. to this day, it was the best decision I've ever made. And really, I, yeah, I still, to this day, talk to all of my old companions, you know, the people I was with the whole time or the people right. that I taught, the people that I served, I'll send them Utah gear too. It's hilarious. <laughs> see some Peruvians or Brazilians wearing Utah gear. Awesome. Um, anyways, it was, it was the best thing for my life by far. Tell me why. Why are you saying this was the best choice that you've ever made? Well, I believe that. I really do believe that if you put God first, things kind of just fall into place. And it's so hard to do when it comes down to hard things. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, if you keep that as a priority day to day throughout your life, I really didn't even view it as a sacrifice. It, I mean, people on the outside would look in and say, well, was that a sacrifice to leave for two years to serve a mission? And I didn't view it as a sacrifice at all. In fact, I, I viewed it as an opportunity for me to get more blessings, to come to know God better, to grow as a man. And I really believe that if you put God first, that he magnifies everything else in your life. And uh, I believe that I'm the man I am today. Obviously, I believe that I learned how to be a good husband, you know, and so many invaluable lessons for things like that. And, and, and it's more than just serving a mission. I'm, I mean, it's just making sacrifices for God that I think do that for people. Yeah, I believe that too. So what does that look like now, now that you're back from serving? How long have you been home from serving your mission? I've been home three years. Okay. In March, I think. Yeah, three years. And so what, so for someone who maybe isn't a member of our church and they're mm-hmm. listening to this, what does that look like once you're done? Is that kind of like you served your time and now you're good? You're- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, no, this is great. This is a lot of conversations I have with all my teammates, of course, because the majority are not members of the same faith that I'm a part of. Mm-hmm. And you get home and they're like, all right, so you done? And I like to joke with them and say, no, I got to go out again next year. <laughs> <laughs> or or whenever we're recruiting someone new, I usually say that it's mandatory to serve a mission regardless if you're a member or not. And they're, they're just shocked. They can't believe it. <laughs> it's, it's fun to joke with them. But I've gotten home and you kind of just start into life. You know, this is the decade of decisions is what yeah. I've always been taught. With. And man, I'm glad I, I grew a lot because it's helped me. But I've started into life. Uh, I still am very active in my congregation. And I have what's called a calling where, you know, where I basically have assignments in my congregation to go do certain things or serve certain people. So it really yeah, is just what is your calling a continuation. right continuation. So I'm actually in the Sunday school presidency. So I help uh, teach and organize some of the classes on Sunday. Very cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I've seen that as such a blessing in my life too. When it's a constant serving and being served and being Mm. spiritually fed all the time. It's like, you know, we like to try to 
explain to people, you can't just eat one meal and be good. You have to keep feeding yourself spiritually. And I love what you said about this is the decade of decisions. Tell me about that. Well, I think that right now is you kind of, you don't want to let it pass you by that. You decide who you want to become in your life. You know, I'm, I'm throwing out a bunch of random phrases that I've heard throughout my life that I've really resonated with me. But there's one from a man named Truman Madsen. And it says, to be or not to be is not the question. It's to become or not to become. Mm-hmm. And so I've kind of sat down in my life and thought about who I want to become or what type of person I want to become. And in order to do that, what do I have to do? And and it kind of starts now what habits you develop, what, I don't know, what things you do on a daily basis, obviously what career you choose, the girl you choose to marry, girl, guy, whatever it is. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's a decade where it's kind of like the, the fulcrum point of, of your life, I feel like. Yeah, I totally agree with that. What a cool concept that you've been taught and adopted into your life. Um, Okay, you kind of you kind of led me into it because you said habits. So I have to ask you, yes. I have to ask you about your grandfather because he's had such a huge impact on my life and my husband's and my brother-in-law and so many other people who love yeah. the seven habits of highly effective people. And your grandfather was Stephen Covey. So tell me about his impact in your life and what yeah. you remember from what he's taught you and and what do you adopt into your life now from his mm-hmm. legacy. My grandpa was a very, I feel like, inspired person. I feel like all the things that he taught will be relevant. They were relevant 50 years ago when Mm -hmm. he first came up with the 50 Habits, and they're going to be relevant in 100 years because they're principles that don't change. They're undying principles. And, you know, it was amazing for me. So he passed away when I was about 14. So I knew him really well. I mean, I knew. I, we had a great relationship. Uh, but of course, when you're no 14 year old wants to read, you know, and <laughs> no. a book like that. So right. I've, it's been really cool to learn of him and get to know him even better because of the legacy that he left. Yeah, I think I've read uh, almost all of his books two times over now. Um, some wow. of them three and four times. And I just try and apply those principles to my life. And it's just cool. The legacy that you leave and, and the fact that he left so much of it in writing that I can get to know him through those pages and uh, influence my life. It's it's wonderful. And he's my idol. And it was amazing. Even when I was down in Chile, people would see my name tag that says Elder Covey. And I would have at least one person a week say, Covey, is that like the, the seven habits, Covey? You know, all the way down in Chile. Wow. And And they would talk to me about, you know, I read that book and I I changed my life because of it. Or I read that book when I was in college and it made me want to take charge of my life or be a better person. Anyways, it's undying principles. They never change. So it's been impactful for me. Very cool. Do you have a favorite memory or or like one thing that you can share that... Let me think. Well, the one thing that I loved about my grandpa was he was this, you know, people see him kind of as this business guru, thought leader. Mm-hmm. But he was the goofiest and biggest prankster you've ever met in your life. Really? He, yeah. He would show up to, he'd be meeting some, you know, big shot 
guy for a conference or something. And he'd show up in a wig with these funny looking rotten fake teeth he would buy. And, <laughs> and, wow. and he'd show up and he'd shake his hand. And his, obviously my grandma would be way embarrassed. But that was basically him all the time. He was a prankster and a, goof, a goofy guy. And I think he had a great balance of that. Um, he was very down to earth. You know, someone once asked him, how often do you live the seven habits? And he said, uh, probably 70% of the time. <laughs> uh, so he, I, I just think he was, a, had a great balance and wasn't just a thought leader, business guru. He, he was affirming. He, he was a goofy guy, a fun guy to be with. And yeah, yeah. a Miss, real person. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. about how you have had this like eternal run with the Utes. So what happened to make this your third, did you say your third junior my year? My third junior year, yes. Well, so I started my freshman year, I was 18. Mm -hmm. right? so I, and so I played till I was 19. Went on my mission for two years, came back. I played my sophomore year, but at the end of my sophomore year, I tore my ACL and my meniscus which was yep. pretty hard. It was pretty devastating. So the whole next year, um, I tried to play. So that would have been my junior year. I tried to play, but I, my knee just was the size of a watermelon. It was swelling up every game. And so I ended up redshirting. So that year yeah. didn't count against me. Then this last year, obviously COVID hit and nobody lost eligibility. And, and so I only got to play three games. You know, we started so late. Right. But I didn't lose any eligibility. So that was my second junior year. This will be my third. And I actually still have a redshirt season because I medical redshirted what it's called with my knee. I still have a redshirt year. Maybe I'll go for a record and, and try and get four junior years in. I mean, it probably would truly be a record, right? No, anyone no, else I think done three that? is a record. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, Tell me a little bit about that injury because I remember that too. Tell me yeah. what that was like mentally for you and like what, you know, what you did to push through that. Yeah. Well, I've, I'd never had an injury of that caliber. It was, it was pretty devastating. I think the hardest part was sometimes as an athlete or, you know, you like to consider yourself a hard worker in your life, you want to feel like you have control over your body and how it, hard you work and how good you get at something. But with mm -hmm. an injury, it's not like that. Because I felt like I worked harder and rehabbed my knee harder than any person alive. I felt like I was constantly in therapy. And yet my body just wouldn't respond. Mm. And no matter how hard I worked, it was like it wasn't up to me. And so it was pretty frustrating. I had to learn a lot, be really patient. That was when I met my, my wife, which was great. I started dating my wife. And she was really helpful with that. But I I would say that's just the biggest thing I, I learned was um, when something's out of your control, how to, how to handle it, because it was pretty frustrating at times. Yeah. So what did that look like if someone is in that, if someone's listening to this and they have a situation yeah. like that, that's completely out of their control, what did you do? Yeah. Well, first of all, I focused on 
things that did make me happy. You know, like I said, I met my wife and I ended up spending more time with her and I would not have been able to do that if, if I was playing as much football, you know, mm-hmm. but the fact that I didn't have to, it really was a blessing. I think it was a miracle in my mind. And there's just the, you know, I, I always like to think about if you've ever read those, those books about people who are prisoners of war, you know, like man search for meeting and things like yeah. that. It talks about how when they're in like the worst parts of their life and it's totally out of their control, they still find a way to harness something inside of them where they understand that, you know, it's not going to get better. Maybe tomorrow it's not going to get better by Christmas, but it will get better. Mm -hmm. I don't know when, but until then I keep realistic expectations while choosing my own level of happiness and I taking control of that. And it's so much easier said than done. And, you know, I feel like I am very blessed if that's one of the hardest things I've had to go through in my life. Uh, But I, I would just recommend reading something like that because I did and it helped me a lot. That's cool. Do you have like a a favorite book to recommend? You said Man's Search for... It's Man's Search for Meaning and it's by Viktor Frankl. Yes. Yeah. And it's, it's wonderful. I, I would recommend that book to anybody. Okay. Cool. Um, so now I want to talk about what are some of, there is no way that you could be doing everything that you're doing, um, excelling in school, having an internship, being an athlete, also having a good marriage. If you didn't have some kind of structure in your life. So talk to me about that. Like what, what does your day look like? How do you balance things? How are you excellent at so many things? Oh, well, I don't know if I am excellent at so many things, but, uh, I just think that I, I, I don't stop trying. I, my wife and I were talking this year about, uh, you know, what we wanted our themes for this year to be, you know, instead of just choosing one thing where it's like, mm-hmm. if you miss one day, you fail. And then mm-hmm. you start, you know, yeah. we were just trying to have some themes. And this is so typical of a covey. But one of my themes was I wanted to develop good habits that would stay with me for the rest of my life. Yeah. And that way that if I miss a day or a week or whatever, I didn't fail 2021. I can just keep trying to develop that those habits. And um, one of the main habits that I'm trying to develop right now is having a good morning mm-hmm. where I uh, have a private prayer in the morning yeah. and I have a private scripture study, but I basically live out my day in my mind in the morning. I, I told you I really like the visualization things. Yeah. And, I basically try and visualize my day before I live it so that I can visualize the things that will probably be hard for me or the temptations that I'll face or um, the stress that I might face. And I try and live it out early in the morning before I leave. Uh, so that's something that I'm trying, but but I really don't feel like I'm excellent at so <laughs> many things. I, I feel... Well, you're just humble, but that's okay. Um, That's such a cool response. Yeah, I I agree. Like the morning sets up the rest of the day, but I'm not great at visualization. So I love what you're sharing about that. I always think of, I think of um, Michael Phelps when I think of someone who's good at visualizing because he has this, apparently has this whole like crazy visualization thing that he does. And like he listens to the same song and has the same clothes on and he does this whole routine. Right. Of visualizing winning before he wins. Yeah. So, well, some people, you know, they they meditate or whatever mm-hmm. it is. It's it's so powerful. I mean, I 
I remember being so scared to catch a punt. If, if anyone listening to this has ever caught a punt, catching a punt in college is the scariest thing ever. Really? You've got guys running down full speed trying to destroy <laughs> you while you have to catch a ball 70 yards in the air, flying with the wind. And anyways, yeah. it's, and I was so nervous when my first couple of times doing it that I was shaking so badly. I almost couldn't do it. I, I, I really was shaking so badly. Because in high school, I, you were the one throwing the ball. Right. And, <laughs> and I didn't return punts, you know, as a quarterback. But anyways, I had to visualize hundreds of times to the point where I was confident about it. Mm-hmm. And I had to practice hundreds of times. And, and uh, yeah, that, so I really do believe in that type of visualization. Cool. I love that. I'm going to need to do more of that. I'm going to take, that's a takeaway from this podcast episode. Oh, good. So well. yeah, that'll be awesome. Okay. I want to talk about Kyle Whittingham and his influence in your life. I want to know mm-hmm. some things about how you guys deal as a team with loss and how you deal with, like, I, I have seen you rally so many times where mm. it's like at halftime, we're like, oh, we're gonna, probably going to lose this game. And then right. we're like, wait, what? Oh, my gosh. You know, and we're texting on the family group thread and we're like, how yeah. did this happen? So tell me what what is this magic that happens that we can't see? Yeah. Well, I think a lot of it is leadership. Coach Whittingham mm-hmm. is a legend. I mean, I think he's one of the greatest coaches of all time. Uh, he's the same wherever he is, he will always be the same. It's so nice to have a coach that's consistent. Mm. Um, You'd rather have a coach that's consistent than a coach that's, you know, really happy 90% of the time. And then just like a horrible person 10% of the time, you know, Mm. exactly what you're going to get with coach Witt when you go talk to him in his office, whatever it is, he's always the same. He's a very, he's a person of integrity. And I just, I think part of it is the culture that he's built. Uh, there's there's a culture here at the U that's even bigger now than when I came in, you know, like 50 years ago when I had my freshman year. It, it's it's so ingrained into the players that we're a, we are a type of team. We're a type of player. Uh, when you come to Utah, like you become this type of player. You don't, we don't become you. We don't mold to you. You mold to us. And I think that's part of it is it's just a a culture, a mindset where you don't lose, you don't, you know, you're not, not tough, you're not stupid. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. it's, it's really cool. I think it's a credit to coach Whittingham for the culture he's built. And I would say the other thing, this is probably the biggest thing I've learned in college football is just the diversity that's on our team. Uh, We're really unique. We are the most diverse team in the country. We're about one third white. Mm-hmm. One third black and one third Polynesian, almost exact. It's it's wow. pretty incredible, and yet we all we more than coexist. I feel like we thrive. We're, we're mm-hmm. we are a family. We're brothers, and to learn how to see these differences or differences in background or religion or race, whatever it is, as a positive thing. Um, that's something that my grandpa used to teach, and I feel like it's the biggest lesson I've learned while being in college. So my best friends are guys that had I not gotten outside of myself, I never would have been best friends with. And I would have missed out on those opportunities. Right. 
Tell me about that unity that you guys have. Is there are there things that you do outside of the mandatory practices and things that you know you're doing as a team? Are there things that or or even just things that you do that mm-hmm. create unity while you're practicing or while you're playing the games or whatever? Like tell me about how that unity has how that's created. Yeah. Well, college football, you spend so much time together. I mean, you're spending five to eight hours a day together. So it's almost impossible not to become friends with them. Mm -hmm. But it's funny because then you leave football and you still want to hang out with them and you still want to do things. And when I got married, they all showed up to my wedding, you know, dancing around at the party. And I just have some really unique friendships, I feel like. And that diversity honestly makes us stronger, I feel like, uh, than if you were just the same as the type of person that you're with. Yeah. Uh, especially me as a receiver. I mean, I am a minority in this fact that I'm from Utah and I'm white. <laughs> and uh, most of my best friends on the team are out of state and they're black. Mm-hmm. And I've learned so much from them and I've learned so much about them and they've learned about what I've gone through. I've learned about what they've gone through. And so I just think there's just strength that's built in that. Yeah. So shout out a teammate to me and something that he's taught you. Like, tell me one thing that stands out in your mind. That a teammate has taught me? Yeah. Oh, gosh, I could pick so many things. Um, <clears throat> I would pick one of my favorite teammates that I've ever had was a guy named uh, Devin Brumfield. Mm-hmm. He actually ended up transferring this year, but I've never met someone so humble. He came from a really, you know, tough background, a really poor background. And he taught me so much about being humble, but also just being abundant. He went from being the starting running back this year to being third string running back. Um, Not because he wasn't good, but because we had amazing players. We had Ty Jordan and Jordan Wilmore. And Mm -hmm. I never once heard a negative thing out of his mouth, like ever. You never heard him talk behind their back. You never heard him talk behind the coach's back or, or be angry about it. It was, it was really impressive to me. And it, was, it taught me a lot about being abundant for other people's success. Yeah. And I, that is one of, that was a true life-changing principle when I read The Seven Habits, the, mm. you know, the abundance mindset. Yeah. Um, tell me, explain that if someone's listening to this and they don't know what that is. Yeah. Well, the principle behind it is, have you ever had you know, someone, maybe someone in your family or someone who's working towards the same thing as you when they are successful, you want to be happy for them. But there's something in it that you're comparing yourself even unknowingly almost to them. And it kind of makes you angry. Or Mm -hmm. when someone fails, it kind of makes you feel good about yourself. And the suggestion with the principle is that's not natural. That's a learned principle, because we live in a competitive society. Mm-hmm. But the natural thing to do is not just to be jealous and to compare. And people view life sometimes like it's a pie. And if you take a piece out, you know, there's only so much left yep. for the rest of us. But the the paradigm shift is that life is just a bunch of pies. It's unlimited pies. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just because someone gets a big piece doesn't mean that there's limited amount for the rest of us. And it's once you learn that, I mean, even recognizing that is the first step, being aware of that in your own life. I've felt that in my own life many times, 
where I feel that kind of, you know, I don't know if it's envy or jealousy or whatever, but even recognizing it is the first step to, to realizing. And now it's amazing. I, with a lot of these relationships I've had where I felt that when, you know, for example, my cousin is successful in something that, that I want to be, it makes me extremely happy because I've worked on that. And I think it's something that we all can get better at, honestly. Part of it's just our society so competitive that it's hard. Yeah, and I feel like it's kind of a human nature thing, like natural man is a yeah. scripture and terminology. But just like, yeah, it's a natural thing that you have to learn to work, you know, work against, like you're kind of going against the current when you mm-hmm. shift your mindset. But it really has, that has had a huge impact on me too in the beginning when I was blogging and I would see other people earn opportunities Mm -hmm. that I felt like I had worked really hard for and felt like, Oh, like if they are getting that, then I will have less. And then I read that in the book and it just totally shifted the way I thought about those things about just what you're saying, that there's, there's plenty of opportunity for everyone. And the more you think that way, the more it will come to you. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So with COVID, tell me how you guys as a team, stayed like mentally tough and positive and, and what you did. And that might provide some inspiration or a positive motivation for people who are still living through the pandemic right now and trying to figure out, you know, how to stay, stay the course and stay positive. What did you Uh guys do as a team or what did you do personally? Yeah, man, it was tough. I think it was so mentally exhausting for us. We were Mm -hmm. practicing for probably two months while we were 80% confident, there wasn't even going to be a season. And yeah. so we were almost mentally drained and exhausted by the end of the season. Uh, and, and really, you can only take so much before you kind of just are frustrated and done. And we, we actually chose as a team not to play in a bowl game because of it. Um, but the truth is, I mean, I, I don't know if I'm the one to give any advice to that because people are going through extremely hard things. And I even, so my wife and I had the chance to go down to Mexico, to Cabo, and I've been down to Cabo many times in my life. And we would go to restaurants where uh, they would be packed throughout my life. I mean, Mm -hmm. out the door packed and and we would be one of the only tables. And yet the people would still have eight servers. And I would just break my heart to think about the things that people are going through right now. Just the fact that they can't sustain the economy, they can't keep people on staff and uh, I, I just think that the answer is finding strength in Christ, uh, with so many injustices in the world and so many injustices being pointed out today in our society. Uh, it just makes you realize how wonderful God's plan is that at the end of the day, mankind is not going to fix all these injustices, but Christ can. And if we live like Christ, we can do our part as well. But Christ is truly the thing that is the center. He will right the wrongs. And he was the major centerpiece of the plan of God. And and it's the one thing that can really save us. And uh, so I would say finding strength in him is the most important. And it's been tough. You know, my football team, it's we've gone through quite a bit. We, that happened. And then obviously our teammate, one of our really good friends, passed away and on Christmas yeah. night. And that was really tough for all of us. And we've kind of found strength in each other and found strength in God. And uh, Pastor Davis has been really good for us. He's, he's a pastor that comes and speaks to us. And 
Yeah. What a beautiful answer. Thank you for that. And mm-hmm. I, I wholeheartedly agree with you that there are just things that we can't understand or explain or make better in, in our right. own human strength and that we have to gain that strength from a higher power. And for me, mm-hmm. that is the same. It's strength in Jesus Christ. And so I completely agree with you on yeah. that. Um, the sin review has been incredible. I am oh. so excited to release it. So <laughs> grateful that you would take the time to do it. I have one last question for you that I ask everyone on this podcast. And of that course. Is, yeah. If there's one message that you want people to remember from this episode, what do you want that one message to be? Ooh. I would say that one message that I talked about earlier that I feel like I've learned a lot over the past few years is that uh, differences are good. I, mm. I, I really believe that some of my best friends um, are more different than I ever would have imagined them being when I was in high school. Uh, but I think that today with things, you know, opinions are so polarized, um, yep. obviously politically and in many other areas, it's getting to the point where you feel like differences of opinion or things are, are negatives. And obviously, there's more to that with, you know, the information that people are reading or the media that you're consuming, whatever it is, I, that causes some of the differences. But I just feel like we're getting away from the fact that differences are good. And I really think that strength lies in differences. Uh, where I fall short, my wife makes up for and vice versa. And where I had one view of life, talking to some of my black teammates this year has really helped me learn and understand this whole social justice and equal justice initiative that's gone throughout and realize where I was wrong and where I needed to grow and where I needed to learn. But that was only because of the differences that I chose to you know, appreciate or learn about. And I just don't want the world to keep going to the point where differences are bad. I think differences are good. They help you get to the best conclusion if you treat them right. They help you be stronger where you're weak, someone else is strong. And and I'd say that's the most important thing that I would, that I would give. (laughs) I love that so much. And I really, that's been a huge learning takeaway for me too of the last year. So Um, Thank you for reiterating that in such a powerful way. So if people want to follow along with your career and what you're doing, you know, in football and in school and everything, where can, where can they find you? Well, I'm on Twitter and Instagram. If you look up just Britain Covey, I'm sure I'll show up. It's spelled like the country, Great Britain. Yep. And uh, yeah, just, just look me up, follow. If you're in need of a golfing buddy, please contact me because (laughs) that is my absolute favorite thing in the world is the golf so yeah just message me i usually get back to everyone who messages me too so cool thanks so much Britton. i really appreciate and thank you so much i i really appreciate it this is wonderful yeah thank you thanks so much for listening to mint arrow messages make sure you follow us on instagram at mint arrow subscribe to our apple podcasts and rate and review us if you like us and to get show notes go to mintarrow.com slash podcast and you can even sign up to get show notes emailed right to your inbox and we'll email you every time there's a new episode Thank you.